to check there and make sure. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes they they just mute my mic for me because I'll I'll just sing loudly during worship and stuff. So I think that's probably to the benefit of the whole church that they mute my mic. But uh, my name's Dan. I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to continue studying Paul's letter to the Colossians. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to tell you um, on the front end, we are going to read verses 1 through uh, 15. And uh, the title of today's teaching is The Value of Wisdom. The, the value of wisdom. And as I was thinking about today's teaching, I was reminded of something that happened that took place. It was a true event. Um, I know sometimes I, I, I may tell you a, a story, an illustration up here that isn't true. But if you know my motto, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? That's a joke. First service, they were willing to laugh at that. You guys, I know, man. You... Thanks for that. Ha ha. Um, but so this uh, this event that took place, it's um, it really is a little funny. Believe it or not. So Payless Shoe Store decided to run a prank on some fashion influencers in Los Angeles. They opened up what they called a designer shoe store. And they stocked it with all Payless shoes, but they removed the Payless branding from the shoes and from the store. And by the way, I have nothing against Payless and Payless shoes. I've worn Payless shoes in the past. I'm sure I'll wear some in the future. But this is quite comical. So they open up this store, remove all of the branding, pretend that it is a, a designer shoe store. Very expensive. That's what that means, right? Every time you see designer, right? That means you're going to pay a lot of money. And they invited in all of these fashion influencers to come in, get a first peep or a first look, a first opportunity to purchase from this new designer shoe store that opened. And these fashion influencers were so blown away by the shoes on the shelves. And they were willing to pay more than 1,800% of the sticker price of the, of the shoe, the value of the shoe. I mean, so shoes that, were, that would cost normally at pay less about $30, they were willing to pay $640, $650, $700 for a pair of shoes. And so Payless has set all this up. They have no idea that this is Payless, right? And then they began to interview these fashion influencers about the shoe and what they liked about it and what was you know, great about it. And they just, they just gushed at how awesome, how cool, how, how, how chic, how sleek, how, you know, all of the, the fashion terminology, these shoes were fine quality. They were amazing. The comfort is amazing. It is so stylish. And then at the end of it, Payless would kind of drop the bomb on them and say, did you know that these are Payless shoes? They said, no, no way. These can't be Payless shoes. These are the top of the line. I said, no, these are Payless shoes. By the way, here's your money back. We want to we want to gift you the shoes. Now you can write about how cool, how comfortable, how stylish, how quality these shoes are and, and help us out. Right. And so that's what Payless did. And as I was thinking about that, right, these fashion influencers, 
influencing the culture, the trendsetters, right? Telling people what looks good, what's fashionable, what is desirable. These people were duped and had no idea. Why? Because their whole system, their whole metric system of valuing things is a bit superficial, right? A little bit superficial. So they, they could get the cover pulled over their eyes a little bit. And so today, when we think about what we're about to read in chapter two of Colossians, Paul is saying to the Colossian church, don't let anyone pull the cover over your eyes. Don't let anyone fool you. Don't let anyone cheat you from the real thing, Christ, from the real treasure, Christ. Don't let anyone smooth talk you or present in such a way that they're so passionate and charismatic and how they present it and so convincing and so compelling and they got the right mood music in the background. Don't let anybody in that setting get you to leave Christ. Because Christ is our greatest treasure. And the only wise way to live is in Him and with Him. And so that's what Paul wants to make clear to the Colossians in our passage this morning. He's going to kick off the first five uh, verses talking about his struggle, his desire for God to work in a powerful way in the Colossian church as well as the churches in that region. And then he's going to lay out a challenge to them on how to live as Christians. And then he's going to end it in the last four or five verses talking about the benefits that we have gained because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he wants them to see through all of that is that Christ is our greatest treasure. The only wise way to live is in him. So without further ado, let me read the, the passage and then I'll pray for us. Again, this is Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted up, I mean rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Seek to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy to empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. 
God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That is the Word of God. Let us pray. Father, thank You. Thank You, Lord. Christ, Your appointed Savior for us, accomplished everything that we ever needed to be restored back to You. And Lord Jesus, thank You. You rule and You reign. You are the head of Your church. We desire this morning to be firmly planted in you. I pray that you would remind us by way of this teaching in the spirit that you are indeed the great treasure. All of life is insignificant if it is without you. But with you, it is the most blessed life. And so would you accomplish these things this morning in our midst and in our time? Be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, if, if you're new to SOAR, if you're somewhat unfamiliar with, um, you know, our commitment to preaching and teaching here, we, we'll read the passage. Um, the one that's biblical, that's, that the scriptures will be read publicly, and we, we like to kind of read it before we begin to start to teach it or unpack it, just so that you can take it in and then we'll start to unpack it and, and, and help you to see how it all fits together and the message that the author is trying to make. But there is something that's important to God when we as people gather and we sit and we hear the word being read and read over us and to us that matters to God. And so I love doing that. Um, Paul commissioned Timothy and commanded him to do that, to, to read the scriptures publicly in this way and he had the church in mind and so we've read colossians chapter 2 verses 1 through 15 now we're going to unpack it and i've kind of structured the these 15 verses into three parts the first part verses 1 through 5 which simply is don't let them cheat you that's what paul is saying in those first five verses and then in verses 6 through 10 Again, that's the challenge, to walk in Christ. And then the last four verses, to look at what you've gained in Him, to remember the benefits that the gospel have purchased for you and brought to you in Christ, to be reminded of those, of those things. So again, you know, that's kind of the approach we want to help you kind of get a grasp of. So now when you read the Bible on your own, you can start thinking about what is the author trying to say here? What is God saying through this passage here and wanting to rightly understand it in its context and so beginning in verse one paul continues talking about his struggle he ended chapter one talking about a struggle that he had right um in verse 24 of chapter one he talked about a struggle that he had now in verse 24 he talked about that struggle in terms of the gospel being preached throughout the known world Towards the end of chapter 1, in verse 29, he starts talking about that struggle to make disciples, to put before people sound teaching, to help them to mature in the faith. 
And here in verse 1 of chapter 2, he's talking about struggle, but now it's personalized, directed towards the Colossians, towards the Laodiceans, towards the whole region of Lystra. He's saying, I am thinking of you. I have within me a desire to see you get all that Christ wants you to get out of him and in this life for him. It says he has this desire to be with them. He has this desire to see them strengthen in the faith. He has a desire to see them grow in Christ. And he has this desire even though he hasn't seen them. That's the apostolic burden, the pastoral burden that Paul felt in his heart for the Colossians. And if you aren't, or if you missed the first teaching that we gave, the church was planted here because of a disciple that came out of the church in Ephesus. Epaphras, who was from this region, from Colossae, he was reached in Ephesus and then he returned to Colossae and preached the gospel and this church was formed. And so Paul hasn't actually been here, but he has a heart, he has a burden for the people here. And he says there's this struggle in him for them to see them become all that God has made them for. See them grow up into all that the gospel promises to them. And in verse 2, he unpacks that even further when he says that his struggle is for them that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Again, he's just talking about this struggle. And if you're familiar with chapter 1, he talks about he had a prayer that he was praying for them. Well, now he's further unpacking, unfolding that prayer. And what is it? He says it is that they might be encouraged in Christ, that they might be unified in Christ with love for one another, and that they might be confident of all that the gospel promises them in Christ. So that's his that's his struggle, that's his hope, that's his prayer, that's his desire, that's what he wants to see in them. And I believe that's what the Holy Spirit is pressing Paul to pen to them so that they themselves might see it in the Spirit that this is what God wants for them. And that's what God wants for us as well. And then he ends there in verse 2, talking about the knowledge of God's mystery. He likes to use the term mystery, he references mystery quite a bit in this letter, and it has to do with these so-called philosophers who, who, who pretend to have, uh, who, who pretend to have cornered the market on wisdom. And Paul is adamant that the true mystery, that thing that was revealed, that thing that was hidden that is now revealed is Christ. He's adamant about that, and so he's constantly drawing their attention to that. Don't give in to these so-called mysteries and wisdoms out there, but here in Christ is the true unfolding of the mystery and wisdom of God. He says, it was hidden. He says, in him are hidden all the treasures of this wisdom and knowledge. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now it might seem like Paul is just throwing out a Sunday school answer right there. Right? You know, you know what I mean by the Sunday school answer? You ask a young kid a question. Um, what do you think the, the, the Bible is saying there? Jesus. 
you know, the church, the Bible, you know, that kind of thing, that Sunday school answer. It may seem like Paul is saying that like, oh, yeah, OK, well, what's real wisdom? Well, Jesus, you know, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. No, 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 no. There is so much more there. When you look at what he's saying there in him, right? He's saying in him are all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, is, is, which is Christ, in, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you, if you put your finger there on verse 3, and then you jump down to verse 9, and you see where he says, For in him the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then if you were to go back over to chapter 1, and you see verse 16 where it says that all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now we know this is more than just a Sunday school answer when he says that, that, the, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the invisible God made visible to man, revealed to man. Jesus, the Son of God, the fullness of God in him, the creator the sustainer, the maker of all things. So when he says, in whom all the wisdom of knowledge is hidden, he's not saying Sunday school answer. He's saying everything that is out there, everything that is made is because of him. Just don't let them cheat you. Mm -mm. Don't let them pull one over on you. In him. In him. In him is where it's at. And then in verse 4, we have the direct mention for the first time his concern about the false teachers in the area, the false teaching that was permeating the area, and specifically targeting the churches. He says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you. What has he said? Not just verse 3 here of chapter 2. He has said all of this, chapter 1, and all the way up until this point, he is saying, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, that no one may deceive you, that no one may con you, that no one may defraud you, that no one may cheat you. Well, the true Value and the true riches that is Christ. And then in verse 5, he follows up this mention of false teaching and false teachers. And there's, there's an insinuation that there is a battle that is taking place. And so in verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. All that means is, my prayers are for you. And this letter is with you. This apostolic letter, letter with the authority of God is with you. But I wish I was with you as well. Why? Because he goes on to say, Because I rejoice to see your good order. And the firmness of your faith. Those are military terms. Your good order. Like an army marching. Like an army holding rank. Like an army moving in a direction. I wish I was there with you. 
And he says the firmness of your faith. That's, a, that's again, a military term that he's using there, emphasizing an army holding the battle line. Not caving in to the enemy's attack. Not retreating. He said, I wish I was there with you, marching with you, holding the battle line with you so that we would all be encouraged, strengthened, unified in this faith. So that these guys, with their persuasive arguments, with their cunning, deceitful scheming, would not cheat us, would not defraud us, would not deceive us. And it's all in Christ. I mean, if you were to read this letter to the Colossians and you highlighted every single time, one color, how often Paul says in Christ or with Christ or in Him or with Him. I mean, you wouldn't be able to see anything else in the Bible. It would just be, you'd run out of ink from your marker how often he references this. That in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this fight, the teaching that we are to remember that we are in Him and that we are with Him and that the fight is to pull you away from Him, to lead you away from Him, to lead your heart, your mind away from Him. But you, you, if you responded to the gospel by faith, you've been brought into union with Christ. He's of far more value than anything else in this world. Again, he references the false teachers in verse 4 and verse 5. He speaks of it in terms of a battle. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 through 24, where he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish? Has, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Don't let them cheat you. This is a battle. Don't be taken by their, he says, their plausible arguments, seemingly reasonable. But they are not. Because in that reason, in that logic, you did not know God. But in the folly of the cross being preached, you came to know the wisdom of God. Stand firm. Keep the good order. And that leads us into his challenge towards them in verses 6 through 10, where he gets into challenging them to live this out, to walk as Christians. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him, in verse 6, 
as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. That's the beginning of your Christian walk, receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord. Receiving Him as Lord. Not as your friend. Not as your personal Santa Claus. Good luck charm. But as Lord. Lord means master. It means ruler. It means the one who calls the shots, who gets to tell you what to do, even when you don't feel like it. He says, as you received him as Lord, walk. Walk in him. So any teaching, any idea that discourages obedience to Christ is from the pit of hell. It did not originate with God. It is not in God. It is from the pit of hell. Any teaching, any idea that would discourage obedience and faithfulness to Christ, that's from hell. It's not to be taken lightly. It's not to be treated as, oh, it's just neutral. Or, oh, it, it's not that significant. No, it's from hell. It says you are to receive, as you've received him, so walk in him. Obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ requires reliance upon Christ. If you are to call him Lord, you need to walk with him. You need his grace to keep you, to help you, to sustain you, to warn you, to correct you, to encourage you. You need his grace. Obedience to Christ requires reliance upon Christ. Now that's different from saying, well, I, I want to do what's right because I don't want to feel bad about it, but I keep doing what's wrong even though I want to do what's right. Well, that's probably an indication that you're relying on whose strength? Your own. Having a desire to do what's right and then bathing and saturating that desire in prayer, and accountability, being willing to do whatever God would ask you to do so that you might do what is right. That is a declaration that you're relying upon his power and grace. Moving on in verse 7, it says, being rooted, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving and I was a little impressed that I, I pronounced this word correctly in the first service, but, you know, horticulture here, you know, the reference to being rooted and then architecture. So we have Paul pulling the two together. I have no idea what he was looking at, but the Holy Spirit was using this mightily. This idea that if you are to be a disciple of Christ, if you are to walk with him, be in him and with him and in union with him, that somehow that God was like a plant, like a tree. God was, would create a process of discipleship where your roots are required to go deep in Christ so that you might be sustained in Christ. And then he says that you're being built up. So then he, he makes the shift from horticulture to, to, to architecture to say that God is building something that will be observable. 
that'll have more of a permanence that I'm inclined to think that he's talking about you and I together, the you being plural, being rooted and built up together, becoming a living temple of the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God. So, ministry of the word feeds the people of God. The people of God are built up by the ministry of the word. And the people of God rejoice at the true and faithful ministry of the word. Because God is doing something and it's observable. And then in verse 8, so that see to it that no one takes you captive. Man, he's going back to the military terms and the imagery war see to it that no one takes you captive see to it that no one makes you a slave of an idea that's not of God that's not consistent with the word of God that opposes allegiance to Christ see to it that no one takes you captive by these things he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Philosophy simply means a love of wisdom. Or to seek out knowledge. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And here's the key. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The philosophy the traditions according to humanity or human preferences or spiritual forces that are dark and not according to Christ. God's not anti-philosophy. God's not anti-tradition. God is anti any philosophy and any tradition that would try to supplant the supremacy of Christ in our lives. That's what he's saying. And see to it that no one makes you a slave of that thing. Because then you've lost the true value of wisdom. You've lost the true treasure that is Christ. And so in verse 9, he says, For in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, it, it may just seem like, like Paul's just kind of shoving some theological terms at the end of you know, this thought here, just to summarize it for us. But again, you go back to what I pointed out to in verse 3 and chapter 1, verse 16, 17, and 18. He's simply saying, by way of reminder, Jesus and Him, the fullness of deity, dwells. He is over everything, all authority, over everything. And if there's any idea, if there's any teaching, if there's any thought that is contra Him, you are to reject it. Why? Because he made all things. He sustains all things. In him, all things hold together. And so why would we entertain any rebellious idea or thought that would push us away from him? 
I mean, that's the essence of sin. So that's Paul's challenge here, to live as Christians. That we are, as we've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, we are to walk in Him, relying upon Him, resisting the enemy in this war, in this battle of ideas and information, resisting the enemy, walking with Christ, relying on Him, trusting Him, knowing that He is everything. He's all and above all. And then he moves on in chapter 11 as we move towards the end here. So he said, don't let anyone cheat you. Walk in Christ. And now he wants to remind them of what they've gained in Christ. Again, beginning in verse 11, it says, In him also you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. And then verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And then in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Wow. This is Paul's gospel. This is Paul under, This is an, an outworking, or these are implications of Paul's gospel that he preached. That he's reminding them of. These are all the things that you have gained. And he starts with circumcision. Why would he start with circumcision? Well, maybe there are some false teachers who are trying to pull the church back towards Judaism. And so he starts there. He's already addressed the Greek component with their quest to seek out wisdom. And now he's addressing the false teaching of the Judaizers. And so he starts with circumcision. Well, circumcision was a covenant sign for the children of Abraham. It marked them off. It separated them from those outside the covenant and those inside the covenant. And so he does something that's really amazing. He he says, look, the circumcision that was done then was intended to point them to Christ. Because it represented a cutting off, a rolling away of the reproach. That which God hated. That's what circumcision stood for. It was to point them to their need for a Savior who would then remove all of their reproach. And so he says, that circumcision is now of no value. What's of true value is what God does in the heart. The circumcision of the heart, cutting off the dead heart or the spiritually dead heart or the heart that is entrenched in dead works towards God that is not acceptable to God, that God removes that heart from you and gives you a new and living heart in Christ. He says that's a circumcision not done by human hands, but it is done by the work of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel and it is joined with faith and we see grace working it into our lives deeper into our souls as we understand it so he says there's a cutting off of the old and then he points to baptism and he says that you were he says that we were um, <clears throat> buried with him in baptism in which we were also raised with him. 
So he's saying, your baptism is to be a witness to the fact that God has made you a new creation. That just as Jesus rose from the dead, that now when you rise up out of the waters of baptism, that it is a testimony that God has made you a new creation with a new heart, that he has done the work in you to give you that new heart. Now you are a new creature in Christ. He did that and he forgave all of your sins, he says. Forgiven all of your trespasses. But he made you alive, not by ourselves, but with him. With him. And then in verse 14, it says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Again, I think he is intentionally going after the Judaizers because he makes a reference to the legal demands of the law. What were the legal demands of the law? Well, if you broke the law, you deserve death. Secondly, it says that he nailed them to the cross. Well, if you go familiar with the story of Jesus dying on the cross, you know that Pontius Pilate nailed something above that cross. What did he nail above that cross? It was a phrase. King of the Jews. So the Romans, when they would crucify someone, they would take the charges against that person and they would nail it above the cross. And Paul is intentionally exposing the false teaching of these Judaizers by saying that, look, the king of the Jews, Jesus, when he was nailed to that cross, all of your sin was nailed to that cross. All of your sin was nailed to that cross. I don't think you understood me. All of your sin was nailed to that cross when you turned to him in faith. There's not one sin that God forgot. Oh yeah, you know, I didn't know they were going to commit that sin, so let me now go back and add that. No, he's saying all was nailed to that cross. Every record, every record of debt, of sin debt, atoned for, paid. Amen. Then verse 15. Again, returning to the military language, he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When the Romans would conquer a people, they they would try to keep either the king or one of the top generals of the opposing army alive for a short period of time. They would eventually brutally kill them, but they wanted to keep them alive and to bring them back to Rome in chains behind a chariot where either the emperor or one of his top generals drove the chariot and these captives would be paraded through the streets 
to open shame, public spectacle. There's no question Paul has that in mind when he's thinking about the resurrected and ascended Jesus. That in his resurrection and ascension, that the strong man and all of the rulers in the heavenly places, that they are made a public spectacle of. He disarms them. And as Ephesians 4, 8 says, it says that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And then he gave gifts to men. Paul unpacks that in, in the letter to the Ephesians, the gifts that he gave them in included the leadership, the apostolic leadership of Paul and his authority to write this letter to remind the church Christ has won a great victory. He's made a public spectacle of the enemy. We are to march in order. We are not to break rank. We are not to be deceived, to lay down our arms. But we are to stand firm. We have been called to plunder the house of the strong man because Christ has made a public spectacle of him. That's a reference in the Bible to Satan and his demonic influence over the nations. That's why Paul in verse 13, talks about Christ. When you come to faith in Him, you've been delivered from the domain of the kingdom of darkness and brought into His kingdom. And it wasn't a nice deliverance. It was a total defeat. It was domination over the darkness that held you. And now He brings you into His kingdom. And we together, marching, in rank, standing firm, holding the battle line, unified, being encouraged, strengthened in Christ. We are not to lay down our arms because someone made us laugh, made us cry, or told a pretty story, or threatened to do us harm. Now we are to stand in this victory. We are to remember what Christ has gained us through His own death and resurrection. And we are to stand firm to this Word. Maybe you live in a vacuum, but this Word is politically unacceptable in many cases. I don't know if you've noticed that. What do we do? Do we lay down our arms? Do we back away? Do we shy away? Well, I'm going to say this. And some of the elders, we can they'll have a conversation with me if it's not right. But let me say this. So anyway, I'm going to say it. If you are a Christian and you are offended in such a way by God's word that it evokes an emotional response in you, you really need to do some soul searching to see if the Spirit of God is really in you. Because this passage says that we abound in thankfulness because of this Word. It may be hard. It may ask us to do hard things sometimes. But ultimately, we abound in thankfulness because this Word is the Word of a King, our King. 
Jesus Christ, Lord, King. But you're in the midst of a battle, church. We are in the midst of a battle. And Christ is the true value of wisdom, but we cannot lay down our arms and give up this battle just because someone wants to tickle the ears or pat us along on the back as we're going along in sin. We cannot lay down arms. We must stand firm in Him. We must encourage each other to stand firm in Him. We must pray for one another and for us together to stand firm in Him. Because God is doing a work. He is building His church. So, let me close in prayer. We'll move to a time of communion. Father, thank You. God, You have not called us to an impossible task. It would be impossible were it not for what You have accomplished on our behalf in Christ. Were it not for Your Spirit that You've given us. Were it not for the clarity and the authority of Your Word. It would be impossible. Were it not for the communion of the saints. What You called us to would be impossible. But Lord, You have given us all those things so we know what You've called us to is not impossible. So, Father, would you help us? Would you remind us that we have the victory on our side in Christ? That we have the wisdom from Christ? And that we have all of these gifts and tools that you've given us to march forward until we see your glory fill this earth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.